This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... If Russia tries to occupy all of Ukraine, that's going to end up in a total disaster and an ongoing civil conflict for years on end. If they divide the country, that is just going to breed new conflict. If this moves to some form of occupation, we will certainly see torture, disappearances, arbitrary arrests. The Human Rights Council in Geneva will do an inquiry. There may be war crimes by the International Criminal Court. So I think the UN is reacting as best it can. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. No guesses what our topic is today because there is, as we record this podcast, I can actually hardly bear to say this. There is war in Europe. In Ukraine, a country at war after a huge Russian military offensive by land, sea and air. Russia, as everybody knows, has invaded Ukraine. And right now, the attacks on Ukraine cities are intensifying. Now, of course, I hope, because this podcast will actually go out a few days from now, that the coming few days will bring some humanity and sanity and that this violence will stop. But for now, on Inside Geneva, my guests, Yussi Hanimaki, who's Professor of International History and Politics at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Gerald Stabarok, who's Secretary General of the World Organization Against Torture, and as ever, our analyst Daniel Warner. We're going to try to analyze what's happened we're going to have a look at whether the United Nations diplomacy, we're seeing a certain amount of it here in Geneva, can do anything. And what about human rights and human rights defenders in both Ukraine and Russia? You see, I'm going to come to you first, because the last time you were on Inside Geneva was just ahead of the President Biden, President Putin summit back in June. And I asked you to try and be Vladimir Putin. And what do you want? I'm going to play a little bit of what you said there. I want you to leave me alone. I, I want you not to make too much about the Crimea anymore. I, I want you to understand that we still have a large nuclear arsenal, that, that you know, we don't need a confrontation of this sort. And, and I want to make sure that you know, economically we can find common ground. Semi-reasonable wishes, recognition of security issues and so on. But what's happened? Early this morning, Russian troops invaded Ukraine. A free and sovereign country. And once again in the center of Europe, innocent women, men and children are dying. I'm going to ask you first, did you expect this? Were you surprised? Has he gone mad? So... Yes, I was surprised, like I think everybody. And it's obviously something I haven't seen in Europe in my lifetime, if you don't consider the wars of former Yugoslavia uh, in the early 1990s. And as you know, I'm originally from Finland, so that added an additional dimension to this, with the sort of historical dimension as well as, you know, slight concern if a neighbor of Russia is attacked like this. Well, what about the other neighbors, especially those that are not member states of, of NATO? So it's not something I expected after last summer's summit. Big surprise. Does it mean he's gone mad? I'm, well, 
maybe a screw loose here and there, but I think it's it's also tinged with this sort of apparent nostalgia about the former Soviet Union or the former Russian Empire, I think the Bet South now, which one is the driving force here. There is also the element of the narrative that, that Putin has been pushing to the world and to the Russian people for the last 15, 20 years, which is that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a terrible catastrophe and that there are some of these um, successor states that are not really states at all, but belong to Russia, such as the Ukraine, but not only the Ukraine, and that it's it's the moment to to act. Maybe arrived in the sort of footsteps of the the U.S. departure from Afghanistan. There seems to be weakness. There is this constant concern that, that Putin has voiced about NATO enlargement, which. I've always found very hard to see what, what threat it is, and you can sort of explain NATO enlargement in any number of ways, but I don't see it primarily as some kind of an American push for hegemony in East Central Europe. But that's the narrative that, that comes from there, and that sort of justifies then in many people's minds. So, Gerald, you see, who's kind of a Russia watcher, was surprised. You and your organization you support human rights defenders in Russia, in Belarus, in Ukraine. What about you? Were you surprised? To be honest, yes, I was surprised. Uh, and I'm still surprised. Uh, I still, maybe like everybody else, I wake up every morning and I think I'm in a different world. Um, and we just pray with you that sanity comes back and constraint in some way. I mean, we were not surprised in the sense of uh, a deterioration of human rights in Russia and in the region over the last years. We have seen this barrel, I think, uh, for, for 20 years now, step by step, things being dismantled step by step, the space of civil society to be reduced, uh, more restrictions, the amount of legislation from foreign funding to extremism, etc. So in that sense, no surprise, but certainly the escalation um, and a discourse, I think, that I see in Russia um, with all sorts of rationale of uh, geopolitical power games, maybe the weakness, the breaking of a bipolar world and all these type of things. But the one thing that doesn't happen in this discussion is about human rights and about the will of people. Uh, so there are geopolitical arguments that basically totally disregard the will of people to, to pronounce themselves what matters to them. And I think that I, I have not uh, anticipated. Protesting in the streets of Moscow just today under the threat of arrest. They're chanting no more war. What you see, however, now, of course, in Russia as well, is the, the further striving down on, on dissent, etc., and I think it reminds us all in democracies how much we have to treasure and defend democracies uh, because we have no counterweight at the moment. But if we speak about Russia, we also have to speak about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, this is a political disaster. This is a diplomacy disaster. We don't know what else will come. But I'm just thinking about uh, our friends in Ukraine at the moment, what they endure and what is still to come. Well, I didn't think this was going to be a particularly optimistic conversation. Of course, it isn't. Danny, the United Nations, you know, Russia is one who always says they're in favour of multilateralism. Has the United Nations got any role here? Well, I mean, what the Russians have said of one thing, of what they've done is another. 
the invasion of Ukraine is a flagrant violation of Article 2.4 of the Charter, the use of force except in self-defense. However, there is a General Assembly resolution condemning it. It's very unusual for the General Assembly to meet. It's the first time since 1982 on this. And the vote was 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions. Russia really, you could say, got pummeled here at the United Nations with this vote. With So in a sense, the multilateral system is reacting. The Human Rights Council in Geneva will do an inquiry. There may be war crimes by the International Criminal Court. So I think the UN is reacting as best it can. You see, let me come back to you. Has the West been naive here? I mean, were there better ways of building a, a good relationship with Russia, supporting some other outcome than the, the kind of government we have with Vladimir Putin? Possibly, um, but um, it seems to me it would have required sort of classic kind of appeasement. It would have required recognition of at least of the way I, I, I see how the the security concerns as they are that have been expressed by Putin and, and his entourage and, and the Russian government over the past couple of decades. It's, it's security that's based on some form of domination, some form of uh, sphere of influence that Russia is somehow entitled to because of its history and its geography and, and, and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think in terms of the West, one narrative is that oh, the NATO enlargement pushed too many buttons and therefore there's some justification to attacking a, a sovereign state. And, you know, like Danny said, breaking the UN Charter, like Gerald said, trampling on human rights uh, and, and so forth. But somehow because Poland and the Baltic states and, and others wanted to join NATO, because of their own history of, of course, relations with Russia and so forth, that that is somehow start to blame the victim in, in some ways for, for the Ukrainians for even thinking about this possibility. Gerald, what about you? Because you, of course, did used to work for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Now, I mean, it's more than 30 years since the Cold War. We had so many hopes the East German government said tonight they were going to make more openings in the wall, at least a dozen more, put bulldozers right through the wall so that more people could cross to the West. And I think even, you know, there were politicians in Russia who were quite keen on the idea of a, of a kind of pan-European alliance. Is there anything that could have been done differently? Well, obviously, if we are in a situation like this, uh, things have not worked out as, as we planned. And there are many reasons. So... Uh, of course, there, there must have been uh, reasons why some somebody has come left the path at some point, and and it has dramatically left the path in the last couple of days. But even before, there were indications probably on leaving the path. But it's true what you say. I worked in my early professional years in the OSC Office for Democratic Institution and Human Rights, supporting democracy building, rule of law building in the former Soviet Union, in particular in Central Asia and the Caucasus. And effectively, at the late 1990s, we were using Russia on many reforms on criminal law, on criminal procedural, prison reforms, constitutional courts, as an example for those republics. And that changed uh, a couple of years later, where the example became suddenly a foreign agent law and all these stifling uh, measures to, uh, on democracy. So, yes, there was a moment of hope. Yes, there was uh, a rule of law building that took place. 
and, and, and unfortunately, this has been dismantled and we pay the price for this. But I also wanted to get back to one thing that you said earlier about the question about um, multilateralism and the United Nations. On one side, if you think about the conflict now, who is going to negotiate a safe passage from people out of Kiev or else? We, we need the United Nations in this. This is a gross assault on the multilateralism. And indeed, the Russian government has been part of initiatives where they proclaim a rule-based multilateral system with which they mainly mean uh, no Western domination, it seems. But we need the United Nations as the only actor that is still standing. President Putin, stop your troops from attacking the Ukraine. Give peace a chance. Too many people have already died. People say often that um, this is basically undoing the security structure that existed in Europe since 1990. Territorial integrity, a non-aggression confidence building, all this is gone. It's, it's like we are in a world without any security structure, not only the security structure after 1990. And that's scary. And that's why I think at the moment the United Nations are the only ones there. And there again, you need a United Nations Human Rights Council to have mechanisms that document violations that actually have a sort of objective basis to bring some sanity back in some sense. But how? Danny, I'll come to you. I mean, a world without a security structure. Well, it's scary what Gerald said. But on the other hand, the system has been in place since 1945 at the end of the Second World War. And in a sense, it's shown a certain degree of resilience. There have not been major, major conflicts since then, certainly not in Europe. Uh, the wars in Yugoslavia would be slightly different. So in a sense, there have been changes. There will be changes. Whether the system is resilient enough, we'll have to see. The Russian President Vladimir Putin is calling this a, quote, special military operation to protect Donbass. It is clearly bigger than that. Now, he made a surprise... You see, is there any... We heard from Gerald there a world without a security structure. So there's got to be a role for the United Nations. I just, with the best will in the world, I just feel like we're in a might makes right situation here. I'm not sure, I'm really not sure what the UN can do. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, of course, it's and, and there is the fog of war, if you, if you will, that, that sort of clouds everything. And, and there's, you know, the rhetoric has become on, on all sides for understandable reasons. It's extremely black and white. And there's, of course, uh, fake news have taken a whole new level as a consequence of, uh, of, of, of what's going on. So definitely at the moment, it's very, very difficult to see uh, uh, sort of immediate solutions. I think Gerald is right. I mean, in the end, somehow there will be an, not an you know end game probably a very very long end game and i think in that context i mean there will be a moment that will change the rules already has the un however that's actually i, I teach a course on on the un and yesterday we were talking about this because it's in every student's mind and there the un is 1945 the charter is 1945 and i think one of the things to remember, of course, is that the charter is in the favor of countries like Russia. So there is a stake. Unfortunately, that, that because it's in, the, in their favor, it also allows them to use or ignore with the veto, etc., etc. Et so, you know, as such, it's, it's difficult to see how in the current structure this will 
be solved solely by the UN or any of its, its organs. The, the CSCE or the OSCE, as it became in the 1990s, of course, a hugely important element potentially in the sort of the pan-European security settlement. And you asked me earlier, you know, what went wrong and, and so forth. One of the things clearly what happened in the 1990s is that there were a couple of possible ways in which this the game could go. You can't go back and change it now. But two big alternatives were, were either the OSCE as a sort of all European from, uh, what is it, Vancouver to Vladivostok or something something like that, as opposed to the sort of we keep what's left of the Cold War structure, which is NATO. Now, why the OSCE was scrapped in favor of NATO, in essence, is, is of course, then an interplay of... Um, of probably lingering concerns about Russia, the new Russia and its instability and, and so forth. We have to remember that the 1990s, while in some ways a very hopeful decade, then became in Russia as the lost decade, right? Once Putin came into power and so forth, it was seen that the Yeltsin period really was a moment of total weakness, disruption, um, chaos, and so forth. So actually, And poverty. And poverty. So actually for the Russian citizen, lack of security, economic security, and so forth. And that's why Putin retains a certain amount of popularity and why, why his narrative has taken on. Still, I think the dominant narrative among, among the majority of Russians, I think still today, that may change, but at the moment, that's still the case. Because I've thought of pretty much nothing else since this happened. And my mind keeps coming back and back and back to the thought that NATO has made it clear it is not going to take on Russia, for which perhaps, you know, we see the, the, the horrific consequences that could be if they did, that the only thing that can change this is maybe the Russian people themselves. And yet, Gerald, as you know, they don't get the information to assess what's really happening, and opposition is stepped on. Difficult. I mean, I have a lot of hope for Russian mentality and culture. And, and if you have Russian friends, you know how much this means and how, how beautiful it can be. And I think that's also something we have to keep in mind to make distinctions between governments and people. We easily say this, but we have to do this. And we also have to keep certain channels from people to people open. Uh, but the reality at the moment, in my view, is that there's very little prospect that you will have a, a massive movement that will stop uh, Putin on this because it's too dangerous. Uh, and one thing is uh, the, the repression with criminal offenses for people demonstrating. We have seen people detained at demonstration for long in Russia, but usually with these sort of uh, up to seven or 14 days administrative penalties. But here they come with potentially treason and criminal charges. Um, and then you have a, a totally different information about what's happening. The fact that, uh, which has been reported so widely that you can't use the word war and things like this. The Russian government has introduced drastic new measures to clamp down on dissent as opposition to the war is growing among Russians. I just read um, on, on BBC um, that Echo Moscow, one of the few remaining radio stations where you would have an alternative view, is off now because they violated this rule. In this context, it's very difficult to expect that the public will get up 
and and I think that's a disaster if you love Russia. That's it's it's you know tragedy. Biden. Let's look at President Biden. This is not what he expected for his um for his presidency. That's the least you can say, Imogen. He came in with a tremendously ambitious domestic project, almost like FDR and the New Deal, build back better infrastructure. Then he had COVID. He has midterm elections. He has some, to some degree inflation. He left Afghanistan, which was not a great foreign policy example. And all of a sudden, instead of having competition with China, he's faced with this. Were they prepared? Probably not. It was unexpected. But everyone agrees that Biden and the administration has done an excellent job in getting the allies and most of the world on their side. We see the Germans giving military help. Uh, we see 141 of 193 countries voting to condemn what Russia's done. China abstained. So in a sense, Biden has become the leader of the opposition to Russia, which is what the United States should be doing. China has indicated that it is not on board with the idea of a Russian invasion. Over the what do we think about that? China is says often it's in favor of multilateralism. It abstained, didn't back Russia at the UN Security Council. Is there a sign of hope there? Is this all about business? Uh, you see, I'll come to you first, and then Gerald. Well, I think it's in part probably is business that that I mean China can be viewed at the moment maybe one of the the victors here in terms of one of the beneficiaries of, of what's going on because by abstaining they, they obviously position themselves on neither side so they're not going to be subjected to sanctions and so forth and yet they still may profit from the Russian hardships that are to come in terms of the consequence of, of the economic sanctions so that's that's one part of it. I think the other part is, is that I never thought that the Chinese would actually join in the, in the veto, although you can read the abstain in any kind of ways, but it wasn't a veto, certainly. And remember, India was on the same team in, in, in that sense. So so the two most populous countries in the world abstain from this particular vote. That's an interesting point, perhaps, to, to, to always keep in mind. And so what what it seems to me is is that what concerns China, aside from the fact of what this might economically damage if they took a clear side one way or the other, is that there is a question of sovereignty, which China has always been, at least in principle, in support of, unless it has to do with Taiwan. So in terms of approving of an invasion by one sovereign nation of, of another, obviously that is not something that would fit into the Chinese narrative. So yeah, the Chinese position, I don't think is going to change too much in the, in, certainly not in the immediate future, that they'd rather sit this one out if they can. Um, and, um, and they also probably noticed the, the coming together of the so-called West uh, that's one of the more remarkable stories in some ways of the, of the last week. Russia is facing a raft of financial sanctions after it invaded Ukraine. As the ruble's value keeps plummeting. Is that, well, there's no silver lining to this, frankly, but is that, has that surprised you too, Gerald? Do you see that as very positive the way the West has come together? I think it's, it's very good that the West comes together and stands firm. Um, 
And I didn't expect uh, such a unity that even the, the Orban government came together and uh, obviously the polls, it, it will put people closer together in Europe as well. That's sort of surprising in some way. But I think it's interesting to look. There was an article um, on, on German media um, um, that there was a Russian editorial published apparently by mistake, a sort of victory editorial uh, on a state media and uh, if you if you google translate it it's actually a very interesting read because it, it makes one very important geopolitical goal which was to break the dominance of the west and to unite with china on a bipolar world with a different world with different power centers etc in that sense chinese response is crucial and also who beyond the european comes together on the european side here is the world as strong on the european side beyond its core uh, so I think there are many questions open, but whatever it is, I think we are all clear that this is a sort of earthquake event. This uh, changes not only international politics, but it changes, I think, for the years to come, not only uh, politics, but human rights in Russia, in Ukraine, in the former Soviet Union. I think we will change, see a very changed environment also globally. So. Uh, we don't know the consequences of this yet, but this is probably one of the biggest change makers in our lifetime. You see, we're coming to the end of the program, so we might as well try to end it um, on a message of hope. Oh, I, I wasn't going to voice a great message of hope. I, what I was going to say is you asked me earlier if, if the sort of the West, so to speak, had been naive and I don't think naive. But ignorant, I think, to, to a large extent in terms of going back to the 1990s and so forth. I think after the 1990s, interest in Russia and what's going on in Russia has taken a, a nosedive, you know, in Western Europe, in the United States. I see it through universities. You see it through scrambling for, for experts now suddenly because this happened and turns out, well, actually, we haven't been teaching Russian history or, or, or anything like that for quite some time because the end of history came and so it didn't matter anymore. We've been focusing on China, the remarkable rise of China, why did it happen, all, all those questions, uh, and American decline, um, which apparently is happening in, in parallel and, and, and so forth. So it's, it's, it's in part, it's not to blame anybody, but I think that's, that's part of the story. That, that's why we are so shocked. And that perhaps also why why certain other sort of measures or policies or efforts were not made at, at certain points in time. That when Putin, for example, in 2007, was talking about the great Soviet Union at the Munich Security Conference and, and laying out, uh, you know, the future as we now know it, you know, nobody was really paying attention to this except, you know, shrugging their but shoulders. Laughing saying, a bit, well, there he goes again. And uh, uh, laughing a bit, yeah. Which, you know. No, I just wanted to, to, because we're looking for a message of hope. And of course, it's very difficult these days to have any message of hope. But one wish I have in some way is that we get more conscious of the value of freedom, of democracy, of the rule of law, of institution, of checks and powers, uh, and ultimately on fundamental human rights. So if in that sense, uh, this brings Europe together to its foundations, uh, of why we are together uh, and not only the enemy that is sort of pushing us together, but what actually holds us as values together, um, at least there is a slim idea of a message of hope. Danny, are you able to come in and offer 
anything hopeful for the coming days, weeks, months? I certainly don't for the people of Ukraine. This is terrible. The humanitarian crisis is going to explode. The only hopeful thing is that Russia has become a pariah. Putin and the people around him are being sanctioned as best we can. And hopefully this won't last. But the international community, 141 countries, the UN and other people are reacting to this as best they can. And the fact that China did not vote against the resolution the General Assembly gives us some hope. You see, last question for you in terms of geopolitics. How do you see this going? I have this horrible scenario of a kind of a Syria where UN envoys go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for years. And at the end of the day, Ukraine belongs to Russia. I mean, for Ukraine, it's the whole set of circumstances and so forth makes it so bad, particularly as long as this this onslaught continues and the longer it continues. Obviously, it will be ever so much more difficult to build something sustainable in the in the future and then you know there are other uh, other possible scenarios you know if russia tries to occupy all of ukraine that's going to end up in a total disaster and an ongoing civil conflict for years on end if they divide the country that is just going to breed new conflict in the region so if no i, I don't see any sort of in the near term given what's happened just in one week in terms of the destruction, loss of human life and so forth, because, you know, people don't forget that on the ground. I think the only way forward is really ultimately is, is some kind of a, an armistice to end of hostilities, end of fighting. And then hopefully, like Danny said, maybe the UN can still in some form or another play a, an important role. It's not going to be the United States doing the peacekeeping in the Ukraine. Obviously, it shouldn't be Russia. So uh, it's hugely difficult to see a sort of very positive future at this moment in time, sadly. Gerald, last words to you. I would like you to send a message to the groups and individuals that your organization supports and works with in Ukraine and in Russia, because they are there, we know it, and in in Belarus as well. Well, I think, yes, my, my thought is, of course, how can we support groups in the future? We are part of one universal human rights group and actually some of the organizations in, in the countries you mentioned are some of the best anti-torture organizations we have. Very sophisticated, very principled, uh, and and achieving results in those countries, uh, even under difficult circumstances. I think one of the efforts has to be from the human rights side, of course, protecting victims in this context from indiscriminate violence, as we as we know in any conflict. But if this moves to some form of occupation, we will certainly see torture, disappearances, arbitrary arrests, and 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 the usual suspects in that sense. And we will have an environment very difficult for human rights organizations to work. And we have to make sure on one side that the UN plays a role in in documenting and monitoring the situation because we need the UN and an objective actor in this. But we also need to support those groups that are presently in Ukraine that might have to leave, that might have to reestablish themselves elsewhere. Uh, We have to support groups that uh, do provide support to victims, uh, uh, that do provide support to refugees, that might document violations from refugees floating into neighboring countries in Moldova, in Hungary, in Poland, 
And we have to support basically that there is a right to defend rights in the whole former Soviet bloc, because we will see repercussions in Central Asia. We will see repercussions in the Caucasus. So from a human rights organization's perspective, I think it's crucial that the light stays switched on whatever solution we will have, whether it's a frozen conflict, which for me would be already in the immediate, the greatest success thinkable. But we have to make sure that this doesn't become an outer space for any human rights information. And, and I think that's one of the responsibilities to look at as well. Well, on that note, that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. I suppose the last words from me are, this is not just a hot war, it's a values war. That's what it seems like to me and maybe maybe we need to think just keep pushing this you said it's human rights human values humanity values forget about east and west keep with that i'm sorry we haven't had a more optimistic uh, program for you today we tried to bring a bit of insight into the situation from the geneva un and human rights perspective thank you to you see honey mackie gerald stabrock and our analyst daniel warner and to all of you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.